beginning this series tonight, Romans 8, and we'll look at verses 1 through 4 this evening. Before we do so, let's pray together as we open this chapter together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are ours. We're thankful that you have made us yours. We do pray that you would speak to us tonight as our great prophet, as our great priest, as our great king, that you would gather your people together before you and that we would be as Mary was sitting at your feet, listening for that voice of yours speaking to us eternal truth. you calm our hearts, may we not be busy Marthas in your presence this evening. May we be quiet Marys who know the good and the right thing. That we would find that as you speak to us, that it is a calming voice that stills our hearts amidst the storms of life, it speaks to our spirits. Your spirit indwells us, that takes our minds and makes them your mind. So your truth in us, we pray. We pray this in your strong name, our Lord and our Savior, our priest, our prophet, our King, Christ Jesus, amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. God's holy and errant word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Romans 8 is often, has often been called the greatest chapter in the greatest book that has ever been written. I would say this chapter is worth pouring over, it is worth memorizing. If you are looking for something to memorize in the Word of God, this is a good chapter to memorize, because it's a good chapter to meditate upon as you walk around your house or you're in the workplace or on your bed at night to review this chapter in your head and uh, kind of take those words and turn them over and to mull over them and to try and get them more deeply seated into your heart. We'll spend the evening services until summer looking at it and 
This chapter, Paul tells us in the most wonderfully, I think, encouraging and theologically precise way what our life now is in Christ. He makes it very clear. It's all theology. It's all theology, all statements, all indicatives. One thing to note about Romans chapter 8 is there's not a single imperative in the entire chapter. He's just telling us what God has done, who God is to us, what God has made us to be, and who we are now in Christ. A single imperative in the whole chapter. One theologian put it in the negative by saying this chapter begins with no condemnation, ends with no separation, and in between, in between there is no defeat. I love that. It's a good summation of this chapter. Well, Paul begins the chapter with this, with no condemnation. Condemnation is a forensic term. Maybe you've been in a courtroom, or we've all at least seen this on television or in a movie where there is a defendant that is standing before the judge and the judge with the paper that is before him declares the verdict to the accused that stand there, that stands there and as that decision is read and in the best of courtroom dramas where he pronounces to that man or woman that is standing before him not guilty. And the entire courtroom just kind of erupts in jubilation. You have that man or that woman that is standing there, the accused individual. In that moment, their life has changed for the rest of their entire life. And they cheer and they embrace others. When that happens, it's a thing that they will celebrate for the rest of their life. They will always look back, and all the rest of their life will be changed by that verdict. It will shape everything about them, because it altered everything. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not guilt. start with examining our guilt tonight. Before we get to not guilty, we have to realize that we are all guilty. Paul says, therefore, and when we see a therefore, we always have to ask that question, what is it there for? Because it always points us back. It points us back to the preceding. And I would argue that what Paul is doing with the therefore here is that he's pointing us back to Everything that he has said in the book of Romans up until this point. And as he went through the book thus far, he's not shied away from pointing out our sin. He's spoken about us all being born in sin. As Paul makes clear in Romans 3, none of us were righteous. No, not even one. He says we didn't understand. We didn't seek God. We all turned aside. None of us did good. No, not even one. Why? Because as he points out in Romans 5, we 
fell with Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. And when Adam fell, we fell with Adam. And so we were born into this world with minds that sinned. With eyes that sinned. With tongues that sinned. With hands that sinned. With affections that sinned. With wills that sinned. We sin, Paul is making the point in Romans 3 and beyond. He's making the point that we sin because we are sinners. In Adam, we all fell. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. No part of our person is untouched. Every one of us has fallen in every part. Isaac Watts captures it well when he writes in the hymn, How Sad Our State by Nature Is. He says this, How sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. And so Paul can say in Romans 5 that we are all condemned in Adam. The pronouncement over us is guilty. Guilty as charged, condemned. Condemnation was ours, guilt was ours. But then he tells us of our redemption in Romans 5 and Romans 6 that there's forgiveness, that there's justification in Christ. And when you go through Romans 1, through Romans 3, and then you get to Romans 4, and Abraham is justified by faith, and you get to Romans 5, and you realize, look, I am fallen in Adam. I've fallen with him. I'm condemned with him. And then that wonderful promise that in Christ there's redemption. In Romans 6, you've been set free from sin. More than wonderful news. Then we get to Romans 7. And we see what so often discourages the Christian. Is that the battle remains. I'm forgiven. But there's still sin here. It's still at work within me. I'm still battling this flesh. And often, because I still sin, guilt also returns. And we ask ourselves, does our condemnation also return as that guilt returns? Isn't that the struggle we often have? We doubt. We know we're saved by grace, but... That somehow we continue by perfection. And when we aren't perfect, the condemnation returns and the weight of guilt descends. And so we attempt to buck up and to try harder. And then when I'm doing well in my Christian walk, it feels like the condemnation is no longer there. But then I fall into sin again and it returns. And so we try harder. 
paraphrase Derek Thomas, we act as though we are performers. But we aren't performers. We're saints. So Paul moves us from guilt to grace in Romans 8. Now, he says, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. love uh, talking to young couples that are, that are in that young love phase, one of those best times of life. And then they get engaged as that young man proposes to that young woman, and you take that young couple aside, and you ask them, how many days until you're married? And they can tell you, or at least the woman can. And they can be 145 days out, and she knows it's 145 days. You ask him a few weeks later, and it's 136 days. She just knows. There's that moment in the service. I've often had the privilege of doing. You stand before the congregation and stand before that couple and you can say as the pastor, now, now I pronounce you husband and wife. It's no longer waiting. It's no longer looking forward to that day to come. It's, it's arrived. Now, and everything is different. Now, says Paul, there's much that we will receive in Christ that isn't yet ours fully realized and won't be fully realized until His return. My body won't be glorified until He returns. My joy won't be full. My heart won't be unwavering. My mind won't be pure until He returns or at least until I am with Him in glory. But this, this is ours now. It's the language of time, the moment, the present. This means that the sentence and the execution of that sentence are no longer tied to our persons. No longer under condemnation now. Because we're under grace. The positive way of saying that, and Paul could have said it, is that we're justified. Justified. There is complete and radical absence of condemnation now. This is the beauty of the gospel kind of summed up in one verse. And its beauty becomes all the more stark when we understand what we were saved from. We too often want to run right to grace. And that's a good inclination. I like it. But we need to understand the guilt. Not to heap it back on. Not to wallow in it. But to reflect upon it. Because when we understand the holiness of God and our guilt in light of it, the gospel 
becomes the most wonderful story you can possibly hear. A Christian who can hear the beginning of Romans 8 and not find their, their heart leap with inside of them. It's a Christian who has lost the beauty of this who doesn't understand the condemnation they were under, the guilt that was theirs. He is holy, and we were guilty. And we need to remind ourselves of that. The beauty of the gospel will not fade as long as our fear of God does not diminish. But when the holiness of God is minimized, when His righteousness is confused, when we expect a sovereign God to forgive and to free, we lose the majesty of the gospel. And so we must consider our guilt. Because it makes the grace of the gospel shine all the more brilliantly. God is a God of judgment. We we're under condemnation. He will not waver from condemning sin. He must uphold righteousness. And so the question becomes, how can there be no condemnation now for a sinner such as us? I still sin. I, I know what I was and I know what I am. How can this wonderful gift be ours now? Here Paul moves us. He moves us from guilt to grace. How, how can we be set free from the guilt and the power of sin in the present and forevermore? And the answer he gives us is in Christ Jesus. In Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, he says. And that hymn of Isaac Watts, which... Quoted the first verse where he says, How sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. He then ends with a glorious sixth verse. Or it ends with the gospel of grace. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. You see, what he is summing up is that in Christ, there is sufficient grace. In Christ, there is our all. This points us back to chapter 6, where we see that it is union with Christ, union in His death, and His burial, and His resurrection, that is the very foundation of our new life. And Paul is pointing out that we can have nothing good, nothing good apart from Christ. There's no spiritual blessings, not even one, outside of Christ. But when we are united to Christ, we have all spiritual but you have to be united to Him. You can't just admire Him. You, you can't just learn from Him. You can't just celebrate Him. But you have to be 
part of Him. You have to be united to Him or there is no benefit. But in Christ Jesus, there is not only spiritual benefit, there is every spiritual benefit. All is found in Christ. So we can sing and we can confess all I have is Christ for me to live is Christ. Why? Well, Paul walks us through it in verses 2 and 3. He gives us the reason for our confidence in knowing that we've been justified, that we're no longer condemned, that this gift is ours now in Christ Jesus. That's why the conjunction for is there. So let's take a look. Don't you doubt, dear Christian, Paul is saying to us, you're not condemned, you've been set free. For. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So let's try and follow this train of argument here. Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with the fact that he continues to battle sin. He confesses and Romans chapter 7, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He will say in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That is, the law of sin that is operative in us. Paul rightfully calls it the law of death, for the wages of sin is death. There's a power at work within us, an authority that demands our service. And in this way, it is a law, and yet it's a law that we've been set free from, as he tells us in Romans 6. It's a law that allies itself with death. Paul points out in Romans, there are two ways of being saved. You can perfectly obey the law and be saved. That is one route. It's not one that will help us. The Nazis used to use a slogan. It's on many of the gates that we're at concentration camps. It was famously on the gate at Dachau, and it was famously on the entry gate over Auschwitz when you walked in. And that sign, it, it held out a promise to those that entered through those gates. And the sign, as it read, says, Work sets you free. Work sets you free. In Auschwitz, the, the B in the German was upside down. Historians think that knowing that it was Jews who in the blacksmith shop were charged with creating the sign, they, they think that the Jews in that blacksmith shop turned that letter B upside down to warn people walking through the gate that 
the slogan that was over the gate was not true. Work set you free. And in their way, they were saying, not here. The same could be said of the law. Do the works of the law and it will set you free. Not here. Now the law of God is not wrong. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 7. But no matter how hard we work, we will never earn our freedom. Not because the law is bad. Not because there is evil in the law, but because there is evil in us. And that's Paul's point here. It's the devil's lie as much as it was the Nazis' lie that work will set you free. It won't because we can't. The law is good, but we are unable to keep the law. As Paul points out in verse 3, the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. There is inability not in the law, but in us. We can try. God does not honor good intentions. We may do better than others, but He does not reward those who do better than others. We might do many great works, but God does not honor a whole bunch of great works. Someone could be the most law-abiding person who ever existed. They could say with more confidence than that rich young ruler who appeared before Jesus, all these I have kept. And all the rest of mankind could be eons behind them. Be like beasts compared to them in their obedience to the law. Because they were so righteous according to the law. And yet, if there is but one sin, just one failing, just One stray thought, just one slip of the tongue, just one illicit desire, just one not doing something that you were supposed to do, then they violated the whole law. That's what James says. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And they are not righteous. The standard is perfection. Because God must be just. And so the law will never lead you and I to no condemnation. The second way is what Paul was detailing. To be in Christ Jesus. And to have the spirit of life, as Paul says here in verse 2. This will set you free. I love how one theologian put it. I'll read it twice, because it takes a little bit. He said it this way. He said, Moses' law has right but not might. Sin's law has might, but not right. The law of the Spirit has both right and might. Moses' law has right, but not might. Sin's law has might, but not right. 
the law of the Spirit has both right and might. What the law could not do, what we could not do by obeying the law, God did for us in His Son by the Spirit. And that is grace. It's a work of His grace. You'll notice from this text that this grace flows from a triune God. It's a a triune work. We have all three persons of the Godhead uniting in this holy action to save a people for themselves and remove our condemnation and grant us freedom. It's His divine action. He takes the initiative, verse 3, for God has done. How? By sending His own Son. It's divine action moved by divine love that accomplishes humanity's salvation. It's the Father who sends His Son. Father who has always been the Father of the Son. The Son who has always been the Son of this Father. He has a unique relationship with this Son, unlike our adoption as His Son. The Son has a unique relationship with this Father, unlike, in many respects, our relationship to the Father. It is this Father who sends a Son. He didn't send an angel as profound as that would have been. He didn't send a mere prophet or a priest or a king as wonderful as that would have been. He sent a Son who has a relationship with Him like no other. And the Son, we see in verse 3, comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And this is one of the most careful and precise statements of the Incarnation in the Scriptures. Paul's very careful here. The Son didn't just come in sinful flesh. If He had, then He could not be our Redeemer. Jesus was without sin. But neither did He just come in the likeness of flesh. That is, it it wasn't an illusion that He was in the flesh. His, His Bodily appearance wasn't somehow analogous to our body. No, He came as one of us. And He is, and He first shall ever be bodily. The Son was adorned with a body. And yet, it was without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. His grace in all of its beauty, because it's it's divine action taking the initiative, doing what you and I could not do, to accomplish what you and I were not able to do, so that we might be set free. As Paul pointed out in Romans 5, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It was humanity that fell, and so it was humanity that had to pay the cost for the fall, and so he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, but he also had to be divine, because all born from Adam were sinners in this world and under the condemnation of sin and death, and so he would have to be divine so that he could uphold the perfect, righteous standard of God. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
for sin. It is to deal with sin. To triumph over sin. To have victory over sin. That is grace in the person of Christ. Sent by the Father. Empowered by the Spirit. So that you and I may not have condemnation. You see this. This great reversal in the text. told at the end of verse 3 that he condemns sin in the flesh. I think because of sin, we are condemned by God in our flesh, but now sin is condemned by God as he dwells in the flesh. Great reversal. A judgment goes against sin. We are not condemned. Sin is condemned. Put all this together and you see that sin no longer marks the Christian. That's what Paul is trying to get us to see. You've been, you've been set free. been set free from the power of sin. You've been set free from the guilt of sin. Free. The son sent by his father, empowered by the Spirit, conquered. And when you and I, when we are struggling, and we allow that guilt to weigh us down, we attempt to carry it around, we make a mockery of the cross and what's been done for us. we have confessed and after we have repented from sin and we continue to walk around as if we are someone that hasn't been forgiven makes a mockery of the crows you've been set free the condemnation is not yours been born by another. It's been carried by another. The penalty's been paid. You're not earning any favors with God by walking around that way. You confess, you repent, and you live in the freedom of that grace. The spirit of life sets us free in Christ Jesus. We've been moved from guilt to grace. There is therefore now no condemnation. And that move from grace is meant to lead us to glory. And as we move along that path, we're meant to glorify Him. We see that divine purpose in verse 4. Are glorifying Him 
on the way to glory. Guilt to grace to glorifying Him on our way to glory. The divine purpose, verse 4. In order that, that's a purpose clause, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've been set free so that we might now live for His glory. You couldn't do it before. Now you can and you must. Now there's some disagreement about verse 4 here in the history of Christendom and even in the Reformed faith, the Reformed tradition. Some have argued that this is a reference to Christ, that this is His act of obedience and Him fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And... Though that was absolutely necessary and true, I understand this verse to be referring to our response to God's grace given to us. Why? Because Paul does not say here that we fulfill the law's righteous requirement. It's not what he says. He says in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He's pointing to the work of the Spirit at work in us. Apart from Christ, you can't do anything good. There was nothing righteous that could flow from us. But now in Christ, he's saying, you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of life. And so you're now able to live a righteous life before God. The guilt is gone. Because grace has been given. And now God glorifying gratitude is the response. What we could not do, now we can do by the Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All of grace. But then the conjunction again, for. For. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before Him beforehand that we should walk in them. Guilt to grace to God glorifying gratitude on our way to glory. At that fourth verse, I think it's just staggering that God's purposes are fulfilled in us. His purpose is fulfilled in us. His purposes are fulfilled as we walk by the Spirit. His purposes are fulfilled as we love one another. His purposes are fulfilled as we rejoice with those who rejoice. His purposes are fulfilled in us as we seek peace and extend peace. His purposes are fulfilled in us as we wait in patience for Christ's return. And you could go through the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. His purpose is fulfilled in us. Notice, though, that Paul says it's a walk. None of us are running down the Christian path, and often the walk is stumbling, and sometimes it's crawling, but it's always a walk. It's a continual moving forward by the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Sometimes we take a step back. Sometimes we take two steps back. Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, sometimes we 
lose the scroll when we slumber a little bit, and so we have to return back, and we have to find that Word once again, and treasure it once again, and be led by the Spirit once again, and repent, and then walk on our way, and as we do, we take five steps forward. And over the course of our lives, we continue down this path. We're walking. Spirit has granted us the freedom that Christ secured for us so that we can do so. And we want to do so because of the great salvation that we have received. So we move as Christians from guilt to grace. And as we live in that grace, we seek to glorify God in gratitude as we move on to glory. That's our story who we are. We live in the freedom of that, to His glory. You've been set free, dear Christian. Remind yourself of that and live like it. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we are thankful you are a God who does not abandon your holiness or righteousness. How awful that would be. We are equally thankful that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who gives grace to sinners. How awful it would be if that was not the case. We are amazed, O God, that you seek to accomplish your purposes in this world in us and through us. And oh, we pray that we would live in the freedom of the grace that we have received. We would fend off our adversary who wants to bring us under condemnation again. That we would rebuke sin as it accuses us and we would say, yes, all that is true and more, but it has all been paid for. We have a Savior who died and was buried and resurrected for us and who has ascended to the right hand of our Father and even now intercedes for us. And so there is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. May our lives be marked by the gratitude that should flow from them, that should consume them, that should move and shape all of our living together and in the world. Oh, Father, You are worthy of all the glory we can ascribe to Your name. Would you bring us home that day when we shall be before your throne and we shall enjoy all the privileges of those who have no fear of condemnation but can boldly approach your throne. In Christ, our Savior's name we pray. Amen.